0: you to grab one of the sermon note inserts. It's called titled Rally the Family. At the top it has Nehemiah 8 on one side, a place for notes, and the Connect Group study on the other side. Uh, today we're, we're, we're moving into Nehemiah chapter 8. And, and there are two things I want to do. One thing I want to say practically and one thing I want to say spiritually. One is last week we introduced the, the uh, commitment cards. And I want to explain those really briefly. First of all, these are in, this is an invitation to participate. There's nothing about this entire commitment card thing that is a requirement that says, oh, if you don't participate, you're a bad member. Um, it's none of that. This is an invitation for you to participate in an act of commitment. And so what, will it, what we're inviting you to do, um, this Commitment Sunday is next Sunday. What we're inviting you to do is fill out one of these commitment cards and, and place it in the envelope. Seal it. Put your name on the front of it. These envelopes, there's gonna be a place to put them on the altar next Sunday. Place your name on it. These cards will remain sealed and unopened. This is just between you and God. This is, just, this is a, an opportunity for you to reflect on God's goodness to you and how you want to respond to his goodness through your offerings, both to the general offerings of Mount Lebanon and to the rally of the family, the, the roof tuck pointing and, and mortgage that we're trying to raise money to pay that down more quickly. So, so please take, consider that over the next week. But, but the other thing I want to say, this is, this is more important. I, I've been saying this entire series that the, raising money is the minor goal. I know it feels like the major goal because that's the major push, but it's really the minor goal. Our prayer is we want you to grow in faith. We want you to grow closer to Christ. We, we aren't just trying to get stuff done. We want to get you done, I said a while ago. We, in other words, we want you to mature in your faith. We want you to grow up into Christ. And, and so if we're going to rally the family, this is the introduction to Nehemiah 8. If we're going to rally the family, it has to start in word with word, worship, and prayer. It's got to be there, right? The raising the money is the minor thing. It's got, we got to be here. If we're not here, then leave the money at home, right? You're not here anyway, so why would you bring money? But you get the point, right? If we're not in the word and worship, if we're not growing in faith, if our faith in Christ is lacking, then the money is irrelevant. Maybe we don't even want it. Does that make sense? So Nehemiah 8 pulls us there. This is, this is God's people at worship in Nehemiah chapter 8. And it's a six-hour service, but I promise not to go that long. So if you thought we were long here, Nehemiah was longer. All right, Nehemiah chapter 8. Please listen. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. Guys, can you click through this, please? They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses. So that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which the Lord had commanded and given for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and others who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maasiah, And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Hilkiah, or Malkijah, Hashun, Hashbanana, Zechariah, and Mashulam. Ezra opened the book. Imagine this. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Desh, Jeshua, Bani, Sherabiah, Jam, and Akub, Shabbatai, uh, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Ezariah, Josabad, Hanun, and Paliah, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord, to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is the word of our God. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, uh, you put me and your word in front of your people. And you'll put your word in the ears and minds and hearts of your people. So let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts, let it all be pleasing in your sight. You, God, are our rock, our redeemer, and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Joy, we're talking about joy today. Joy is an elusive thing. It's a little bit like trying to hold the wind or catch the wind or hold water in your hands. If you've been thoroughly Americanized, you you, you live with this sense of pursuit of happiness this pursuit of joy, this pursuit of enjoyment, this, this pursuit of a life, because you can't really grasp it. And even if you have it for a moment, it slips through your fingers like water on your hand. And, and even, when, even when we define hope, joy as, as, as joy in Christ and joy because of what God has done, joy from Jesus, joy in Jesus, even that seems to be a, an elusive thing. Like, we know that Jesus died. We know that we're the beloved children of God who are dearly loved, protected, guided, and guarded by our King in heaven. And and yet, it's like trying to catch the wind. Sometimes people see me when I'm walking around, whether it's at home or at church, and people say, what's wrong? I have this nasty, resting, grumpy face. I Promise you, I, I often say nothing's wrong, and sometimes there is, and I just don't want to talk about it. But sometimes it's just the way my face looks. I'm sorry about that. But but we want. But I don't think I'm the only one who who walks around this way because there's burdens and expectations and challenges and questions and anxious thoughts. All the things that are going on behind our eyelids. That that even when we have glimpses of joy, it. Escapes through our fingers like water on her hand. And we're not the only ones. Nehemiah, you, you caught this. It, joy doesn't even show up till verse 10. The people are gathered as, as one to hear the word of God. They, they rejoice to hear it. Amen, amen. They rise up, they lift up their hands to praise the Lord. But then they listen to it, they meditate on it from, for six hours. And Nehemiah has to tell them to stop crying. Stop weeping, stop grieving. This day is holy to the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength because they were, they, joy had escaped them. The moment of praise for the Lord had gone as if they were grasping at the wind. Joy is an elusive thing and it is also something that I think we all want more of. We, we want to experience and have and live with that joy all the days of our life. If you don't want to have more joy, the sermon's probably not for you. So you can just take a nap now. But for the rest of you who want, to, who want to know about joy, who want to have more joy, who want to experience the joy of the Lord and let that be your strength, please listen, there are four things I want to say. First, it's this. Let's talk about what joy's like, what this is like. Secondly, how we get it. Uh, thirdly, what is the joy of the Lord? So we say this thing, what does it mean? And, and fourthly, what this joy gives us. I, I wanna start, I'm gonna put, the, put this up there, put this up there, I wanna start by talking about and exploring with you what it's like. I, I could, I suppose, stand here and say, joy is and offer you up a definition. I, I, I could tell you what it's like, I could tell you what joy is, but I think I'd rather offer you a definition, or a, not a definition, an illustration. What is joy like? Well, let's just think for a minute about Nehemiah and the people. And actually to understand what their joy looks like in Nehemiah chapter 8, you have to read on past what I read to you just a minute ago, so there's your homework, read 11 and on. See, after weeping, after grieving, after falling on their faces and humble worship and brokenhearted worship, Nehemiah said the joy of the Lord is our strength. And what did they do? Joy looks like God's people going home and sharing food with each other. It, it looks like the people of God having a, a potluck where the haves and the have-nots, those who had plenty and those who had not enough, where they all, they shared with each other. Those who had shared with those who had none. It was, it was like a, a, a wedding party. It was like a community festival where there was food and drink and God's people. What is this joy like? It's like God's people sharing a festival meal together and celebrating God who makes us one. What is this joy like? Well, the psalmist talks about it this way. He talks about it. It's like a, it's like a bird from a cage. You know, you imagine a bird in its cage, and if you've seen a bird, even when there are no cages and there's just a window, they're, they're just banging against it. Right? Imagine a bird in its cage where it can hardly open its wings all the way, and it sees the gap, and it's trying to get through the gap, and it just, it's banging and pounding. You can hear the rattling of the cage, can't you, as it frustratedly tries to get out. But when the cage is opened and the bird wings through the opening it gets out and it opens its wings and it flits and it flutters here and there like a sparrow darting back and forth going where it wants to go when it wants to go there it's it's free unhindered uncaged it's like a bird from a cage it's like a calf from its stall you, you know i i'm not a farmer my grandpa was i told you that before and it was always fun to see the calves get released. And I was never there in the spring, but I can just imagine a, a winter where the calf is, is stalled in its pen. And, it, and it's growing and its legs and it's, all of its muscles are starting to get angsty, anch, achy and anxious because it just wants to let go. And and then when the farmer comes in the spring and the sun begins to beat down on the back of this calf and the farmer opens the pen door, what's the... Do you have a picture in your mind of what the calf does when it gets out? I can't do it with my body because I don't have four legs, but it kicks its legs up. And it begins to frolic. I love that word, frolic. Like, there's no... it, It seems like there's no purpose. It's just... Legs here, legs there, just kind of bounding and bouncing all over the place because it's free. That, that's what joy is like. Like a bird from a cage, like a calf set free from its pen in the spring. I've had moments like this. I can tell you about one of those moments. It was on a family vacation. And I'm not sure exactly what it was, but we were traveling and, and, and there was, you know, you leave, sometimes you leave church work or you leave work in general and you still carry work with you. You know how that goes on vacations, but this time I didn't bring it with me, not even on my computer. It was just, you know, you get on vacation and you're, you're goofy and you're silly and, you're, and you don't care. Our alternator died at five in the morning. We were driving through the night just outside St. Louis. So we're far from anyone we know and we somehow made it. It was okay. We, got a, our, we had to get our alternator fixed in St. Louis. That was fun but but the, the nothing could steal that there was it was a moment of i don't care in a in a really positive way like there's no worry there's nothing pressing down me it's it's like that it's like martin luther's tower experience you know he's he's for the longest time in martin luther's life he hated god and saw god as the enemy and what that did for him is it drove him into the scriptures because he wanted to understand how is a person right with God how how does how does a person live with a, with a holy God and he searched the scriptures and searched the scriptures and then he came to Romans 1 where it says this is the righteousness of God that the one who is righteous through faith that one will live and Luther said it was like this is his experience it was like the gates of heaven were opened and that God was smiling on him be, because he knew he was righteous by faith. It's like that. That's what this joy is like. But the question is, how do we get it? That's number two. How do we get it? Now, this is where Lutherans get a little uncomfortable. We're talking about joy, which is a fruit of the Spirit. We, we talk about joy, which is gift of God. And Lutherans are like, well, you can't manufacture that you, you can't program joy as if step one, two, three, and then you'll get it like you can flip on a light switch. It's not how joy works. I want to be clear, that's not what I'm advocating. I'm not advocating a three-step process by which joy will come. But what I want to lay before you is two places where God, through which God promises to work. Consider Martin Luther for a moment again. What was it that brought him to the place where it was like heaven was opened and God was smiling on him? What was it? It was time in God's word. He was diligently and carefully wrestling with and thinking about God's word. He stuck with it. He, he would read it and study it and dissect it and question it and question God. See, it was time in God's word and it was, it was prayer. Prayer. He was wrestling with God's Word. It was his way of living. It was not something he did on Sunday morning and then moved on from. It was something he wrestled with day after day, and it was something he prayed about. He wrestled with God in prayer like Jacob did. He wrestled with God, sought God, and and asked God for his blessing. Think about the people in Nehemiah. What were they doing for those six hours? They were paying attention to God's word. This entire worship service is word-centric. Word centric. The word is right there in the middle of it. The people gathered as one, which is a really cool picture. One person. And they're gathering. And Ezra, just you have to imagine this. Ezra, he's on a high platform. I don't have a platform in the middle of you. But he's, he brings the word out and he opens the book. And the people stand up because it's God's word and they respect it. And they want to hear it. And then he starts to read from it, and he reads. And I don't know if you notice this, but it says the people listened attentively. There's a difference between hearing and listening. Hearing is taking in the sounds. Listening is taking in the truth. He's, he's listening and taking in and wrestling with. I, I hope as you listen to sermons, you're not just bumps on a log hearing the sounds of the sermon. I hope you're listening and wrestling with and questioning me and, and God and trying to understand God's word. They're listening to God's word and they're, they're, they're involved. We don't have time to unpack all of this, but they're, they're, they're totally, their whole being is involved in this, in this moment with God's word. They're standing up in response to it. They're, uh, they're on their faces in humble worship. They're raising their hands. They're shouting their amens right? They're, they're actively involved. They're, they're participating. You know, Lutherans, this is the way Lutherans get involved in worship services. We lean in. That's how I know you're listening, at least the Lutherans, right? You, you lean in. Because that means you, you care about what's being said. If you don't care, you're maybe like this. Okay, now you're going to fix your body language and sit and climb as we say at school. Just kidding. Right? We, we are, we're, they're attentive to the Word of God. And that's how, they, that's how they came to grief because the Word of God exposed them for who they were. And that's how they came to joy because Nehemiah pointed them to God who gives joy. Right? It's the Word of God and it's, it's prayer. The Word of God has got to be... This is why as we rally the family, the Word of God has got to be the, the centerpiece... Of what this is all about. And and, and the Word of God, not just a thing that we do on Sunday and then move on from, not just a thing we read in the morning and then move on from. I I wonder if that's one of the reasons joy sometimes is lacking, because we hear it and then we move on from instead of bringing it with us. When the psalmist teaches us to meditate on the word, Word of the Lord day and night, He's not suggesting that we sit and read our Bibles all day long. He's suggesting that we read the Word of God and then we're like cows where we take it in and spit it up, chew it, swallow it, Sorry, that's a very graphic image, but it's this constant. It's taking the Word of God in and then inwardly digesting it all day long. It's hearing the Word of God in in a sermon or in church and, and reading it in the morning and then taking it with us through the rest of the day and letting it become part of our life. And it's prayer. Do you actively ask God in your prayers to grant you joy? Or any other gift for that matter. James says, You don't have because you don't ask. Isn't asking for joy the very thing David shows us to do? Do not cast me from your presence, he prayed, or, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore, he's asking, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He's asking. God to give him this joy. He's asking God to to restore it to him. So these two things, the word of God and prayer, time in the word of God and active, meaningful, confident prayer, these are the two things. I'm not at all suggesting that if you do these things that joy will automatically come. It's not like a light switch. God will give it when and where he pleases. But I can be pretty sure and say to you that if you're not active in the word of God and prayer, Joy will be harder, to, much harder, if not impossible to find. That's how we get it. But, but now, what is it? What is the joy of the Lord? I, I, this is one of those things that people say, wrote Nehemiah 8 verse 10 all the time. You've maybe seen it on memes. Something goes wrong and the response is, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Something hard happens and people say, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And I always want to ask, I never do because I feel like it's the wrong time, but I always want to know, what does that mean? You say that, but what do you mean when you say, the joy of the Lord is our strength? And I know that's everybody's most hated question from me, what do you mean? But, but I think it's a valid question. If somebody were to ask you, the joy of the Lord is our strength, what does that mean? Could you do it? Over the years, I've wrestled with this, and, and I've come to this, that rather than thinking about it, the the joy belongs to the Lord. And so instead of saying what the joy of the Lord is, what if we said it this way, what gives God joy gives us strength. So, so what is it then that gives the, the Lord joy? I want you to think about that for a moment. What, what is it that gives the Lord our God in heaven joy? What is it that delights him? Well, it delighted God to create this world, did it not? It delighted the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in divine counsel to confer with each other and to lay out a plan and then carry out a plan to create this world. It delighted God to such an extent that when he made something, he said, that's good. And he, and he made something else, and he said, that's good. And then he made Adam and Eve, and he said, wow, that's really good. This, is, this whole thing is, is very good. This is perfect. It pleased God. It delighted God. I, I almost imagine that God's creating this world with a sense of glee and delight as if he's having fun doing this thing. And I want you to understand that when it pleased God to do this, he didn't just do it for himself as though there was some enjoyment for him in it, although he did enjoy doing it, I think. Who did he do it for? It delighted God to make all this for you. Like, like, like a father who, who buys a gift for his son and, and, and he can't wait to give it to him. He makes this really good thing and he says, I, hear this is, I did this for you. Right? Like a father who delights to give his children gifts so the father created all things and then he made Adam and Eve. that's why he made them last because he wanted to make everything ready for them to enjoy it. What gives God joy? It gives God joy and delight to take care of you every single day. So when you sit down to eat lunch, God says to you, Here, it's for you. When you put your clothes on in the morning, God says to you, Here, this is for you. When when he puts people in your life to, to love you and care for you, God says, here, these are for you. When he puts people in life for you to take care of and love, here, these are for you. It delights God to provide for you. It delights God to protect you. He commands, the psalmist says, he commands his angels, gives them charge over you to guard you in all your ways. God is so concerned for your welfare that he commands his angels to guard you and keep you. And not just them, but God himself walks with you through the valley of the shadow of death. Through the darkest valley, God is there with you, taking you, Psalmist says, by your right hand, hand guiding and guarding you until you live with him forever. It gives God joy to do that for you. It gave God joy Our Father in heaven, joy to sacrifice his son for you. Sounds like a weird thing to say, don't you think? I'm going to sacrifice my son so that you can live. But that's how much God delights in you. That he would not spare his own son, but he would give him up for you so that you might live with him. It delighted God to do that for you. And it delighted Jesus to die on the cross. Again, a crazy thing for me to say. But remember what the writer says. He says, first he says something to us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Then he instructs us about what motivated Jesus. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and scorned its shame. What did Jesus do? You know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. He endured the cross. He suffered all the pain, all the agony of the physical suffering there. And not just the physical, but the spiritual too. He endured God's anger at all sin, your sin and mine. He endured the agony of God's punishment of sin on his own back. He endured the cross. And he scorned the shame. It means he laughed at it. He, he considered the shame of the cross to be a small thing, to be an insignificant, inconsequential thing. Why? For the joy set before him. You. When Jesus looked at the cross, he saw you. You were the joy that was set before him. You, your eternity with him. He could not have imagined heaven without you. And so he said, I must die for these people. You people. Is that a negative thing to say? You people. He died for you people. And that's why he endured the cross and scorned its shame. So so what I'm getting at in all of this is what gives God joy? You do. God your Father in heaven, Jesus, His dear Son, his, his most Holy Spirit, they delight in you. He delights in you like a bride delights in his, like a groom delights in her bride, his bride. You know how the groom stands up front and the bride walks in and what's he, What's almost, what, what do we hope the response is? Whoa! Like a bride, like a groom rejoices over his bride and the, the bride over her groom like a, like a parent rejoices over their child. You know how kids bring stuff home from school? And, and what do the parents say about it no matter how it looks? This has got to go on the fridge. <laughs> parents delight in their kids and what their kids do. They love their kids. They're delighted in them. They delight to honor them and care. Your father delights in you just like a parent does their child. What is the joy of the Lord? Well, it gives, what gives God joy is, is you. You delight Him. You are His beloved. You, you are the one in whom God delights day and night. And what does this joy give, last of all? What, the joy of the Lord. What gives God joy? That gives us strength. There are, there are two ways to live our lives. One is in pursuit. You know, we could talk about all kinds of things. We've been talking about joy today. We could spend all our time and energy in pursuit of joy. And, and we could read our Bible and, and pray our prayers in pursuit of joy. And that's, those are good things to do. We, we could live our lives in pursuit of the next happy thing. But I'm telling you, as I did at the beginning, that's all fleeting. It'll. it'll It'll, it'll get through your fingers like trying to catch the air or like water in your hand. And, and the thing about pursuing something is you, you're never really grounded at home and your feet are always moving because you're always to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next thing. What does this joy of the Lord give? It gives us home base. It gives us a strong hold a, a refuge. We, we live our lives planted in the truth that our God is pleased with us. We're not in pursuit of his pleasure. We, we have his pleasure. We are not in pursuit of righteousness. We have his righteousness through Christ. We are not in pursuit of heaven. We have heaven. We are not in pursuit of joy. God is delighting already in us. We live our lives planted in the simple truth that our God delights in in us. You, dear people of God, are the people with whom God is pleased. So do not grieve. This day, just like every day, is holy. And set apart to the Lord. Today is, tomorrow will be, the next day after that will be. As many days as the Lord will give us, those days are holy to the Lord. Each one belongs to us, just like yesterday belongs to him, just like yesterday did and tomorrow will. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve. So instead of grieving, share with each other. Let's make, let's make our snack time epic. Let's, let's see what would happen if everybody brought something to snack time next week. And the week after, and the week after. Let, let's just see how, how Mary and Sandy and Julie and, and whoever else sets up, Joan, whoever sets up for snacks, how, how, how crazy we can make them with all the snacks that show up. Let, let's, and, and if you don't have something to bring, come anyway. And if you don't have time to put something together, Come anyway. Let's just see what happens as when we share with each other what God has given us. If we, as we share in worship and we share at the altar next week, as we share in this food together. Don't grieve. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Amen? Amen. Now the God of peace grant you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you. And also you. Amen